Hello and welcome to The Kenyanist, a show where we seek a deeper and broader understanding of the social and political issues that Kenyans face. I am Kamau Wairuri. Healthcare financing is a big deal. It's been part of the political conversations at the global, regional and national levels. It is known, for instance, that developed countries in the world spend more money on healthcare as a proportion of GDP, that is, compared with developing countries. For instance, um, countries in Africa spend about 6% of their GDP on health, which is less than the 9.5% of the GDP that countries in the OECD, which is to say the developed countries, spend on their healthcare systems. Of course, there are important differences between countries, both within the OECD, such as the experience in Germany will be very different from the experience in the US, as well as in, in Africa, the experience in Kenya will be very different from the experience in Ethiopia. In Kenya, we have seen the healthcare being decentralized. We've seen a lot of debates about the financing and the budgets of healthcare. And we have seen in the recent years a lot of responsibilities being transferred to county governments, especially after the 2010 constitution came into effect. We've also seen some growth in the amount of money being spent on healthcare. So, for instance, in 2020, the allocation of government expenditure to health stood at 6.2% compared to the 4.5% of GDP that was there in 2016. Of course, what this suggests is that there are very many aspects of the political economy of healthcare that we can talk about, and indeed, we we'll look forward to talking about on here on the Kenyanist as we seek a broader and deeper understanding of this really important part of our shared lives as Kenyans. Today, however, we are going to focus on the National Health Insurance Fund, or NHIF, the state corporation that is at the center of our national conversations on healthcare financing. In this effort, I am glad to be joined today by John Kinuthia, a senior program officer at the International Budget Partnership, who has recently, together with his colleagues, published a study on transparency and accountability of the NHIF. John, welcome to The Kenyanist. Thank you, Kamau. Thanks for having me. To begin with, could you give me and give us, the, the, with the audience, a sense of what the NHIF actually does and how important it is to the healthcare sector in, in Kenya? The National Health Insurance Fund uh, is a common household name in Kenya for many reasons. But for many Kenyans, this is an institution that plays a big role when they set foot in hospital and uh, you asked for an NHIF card. The NHIF itself plays a critical role in our health financing architecture. And this is mostly because there's a, there's a mandatory contributory aspect to our health insurance in Kenya for everyone who is in a paid job or in what we call wage employment. But also a couple of years ago, the NHIF also opened its doors for members who are not necessarily employed but have the need to have an insurance scheme in place for their health needs. And even beyond that, the NHIF also receives money directly from government uh, for certain programs, especially for poor programs. So when you think about that kind of framing of what the NHIF is, then it's a state corporation that plays a big role in basically consolidating health resources 
uh, and then helping health facilities to bear the burden of the cost of providing health care to Kenyans. Whichever numbers you look at from government, of course, is you can see how rapidly the growth of that role of NHIF has been since, especially since 2013, coming up. So everything from its membership to its accumulated resources to its payout in terms of benefits has also grown quite significantly. Interesting. So you've talked about the growth of NHIF, but you've also talked about how the scheme has really grown in terms of the numbers. And I wanted you to give us a sense of what do these numbers actually look like? What is this growth looking like from the analysis that you have so far? When you think about the numbers that we speak about when it comes to NHIF, uh, you have to think of them in two ways. Now, you have what you normally would call the principal members. So it means Kamau who pays. Uh, and then you have the beneficiaries of Kamau as well, right? So you have two numbers. You have the people who are doing the payments, but then the people benefiting from the actual services are much more, much more than that. Uh, the principal members, uh, I think, at the end of 2021, had just crossed 10 million people, so quite significant. But the number of total beneficiaries is much higher than that. You can tell that 10 million in a population of just over 50 million people is, is quite significant. But that was not the case before, because that number has almost doubled in the period, especially between uh, 2017 coming up, that number has almost doubled. And that has primarily been driven by these informal sector numbers. If you look at the wage employment membership of NHIF, that has kind of plateaued in some sense, uh, if you look at the, uh, the number. The informal bit is what has actually really driven the growth. If you look at its budget, sorry, the money that it's collecting, that has almost grown five times since 2013, uh, coming up to 2021, from somewhere about 13 or 14 billion shillings to over 60 billion shillings. That, that's huge. So, in fact, the collections have grown at a faster rate than the actual number of people, which tells you that NHIF has become quite a big state corporation compared to what it was before. So, in thinking about that level of growth, then you, you get curious on, so what exactly is it that NHIF is doing differently now that it's become that big? And what is the attraction for the informal sector? Because it's one thing to tell people, you know, you should join, you know, come out, you should bring your mother on board. But I'm sure one of the questions you ask yourself is, if my mother is beyond 65 years old, uh, what are the benefits that she gets uh, that the next private insurance will not provide? That has also been a key part of the reforms within NHIF. If you look at the benefits package of NHIF, that has also grown in terms of the number of services that they cover. You know, things like dialysis were not there before. Cancer treatment was not there before. So that has also been the attraction. So the growth has not just been a government-driven initiative it's also been one that has been informed by a lot of reforms uh, that are related to the services that they provide. The second bit, which might turn out to be also significant, is the fact that not every Kenyan, even those who might be willing, uh, might be able to afford the 500 shillings uh, to pay to NHIF. The government, together with a county government, started a process, I think two years ago, to register all poor households that cannot afford to pay for that premium. And so there's a, there's a component of a social protection fund line that is coming in now directly from the government that is going towards paying for households that are not able to pay for themselves. And that is going to be significant because the target is to bring on board about 5 million people. So when you think about 5 million people and, you know, even if the premium was just kept at 500 shillings, uh, you can see how big that costs that is going to be. So that also is 
in part. But I'm only speaking of those two. But NHIF, by its own confession, has over 73 programs. Just to give context to that, you're talking about the 500 shillings as the premium that people in the informal sector pay on a monthly basis in order to have a cover. What I'm hearing you say is that NHIF is not only big, but it is so critical and so important to the ways in which we imagine and deliver and experience healthcare in Kenya, both from a policy dimension, but also in practice, when you actually go to a hospital at the county level, for instance, and you've got someone who's ill. My overall question with respect to this would be, given the crucial role that they have, and based on the work that you have done recently, your research, do you believe that NHIF is fit for purpose? That's a, that's, a, that's a very interesting and a political question, as I say, right? So if you look at Nigeria, our friends on the other side of the continent, they have an NHIF, but also they have 36 other NHIFs in all their states. And the reason for that is because they believed they are national. Well, it's a federal state to start with, right? So there's already a lot of powers with the states. There was a belief that the national NHIF might not necessarily respond to the nuances of the different states, the different cultures in Nigeria. You know, you know the, the northern and the southern are quite diverse in terms of their culture and the likes. Now, that's not to say that such a conversation has not happened in Kenya, as much as it might not have been as big as what we have in Nigeria. But there's been a conversation which especially played out during the time when we were thinking through our devolution. Because when you think about the healthcare system in Kenya, 75-74% of our health facilities are dispensaries, or what we call level 2 facilities, managed by county governments. When you add health centers to it, that proportion goes to 94%. So already you are saying of the health facilities that NHIF will be dealing with, 94% of them are managed by county governments. If you add the former provincial hospitals and the district hospitals and the sub-district hospitals, that fall in the level four and the level fives, that number goes to 99%. So basically what is left at the national level is, is just six health facilities. All the other 6,000 plus health facilities are managed by county governments. But then here you have this national institution, which in its board had national level government agencies. The decisions are made by the board, which is appointed by the Ministry of Health and has Ministry of Health officially in it a couple of employer presentation and the likes. But there was nothing on county governments in that board. In fact, that was added just in the reforms that were done in early 2022. And so there was a lot of conversation on, so what is the role of county government as managers of their facilities? Uh, but NHIF bypasses them because it has contracts with the health facilities themselves. But what is spent in the county health facilities, regardless of the level, the accounting officer is the chief officer of the particular department at the county level. So what exactly should be the nexus of accountability and decision on spending and the likes? There are some questions, some worries about whether NHIF in that form that it was in was going to be fit for what counties were going to be doing in managing their health facilities. Ah, so that's one side. For a long time, NHIF was also one of those places where the president of the day or the government of the day would place their most trusted friends in running it and the likes. And so, you know, it was not seen so much as 
this technical entity that was supposed to be thinking very critically about the healthcare system in Kenya, but one where it was just to pass the shilling along to well-connected private health facilities and, and the like. The picture has not completely changed. The biggest proportion of uh, payouts from NHIF goes to private health facilities. But that proportion is dropping, which is one thing that NHIF is very keen nowadays to show. So that proportion is dropping. They've put a couple of ceilings on what claims can be made for particular services because that's where the private health facilities were taking advantage of it. What I'm hearing you say is that this institution, as big as it is, and given the political importance and how we know institutions of this kind are run in Kenya, especially historically, that at least by and large, the institution is functioning in the way that, that, that it should and that there are very many efforts geared towards making it function even better, which I find comforting. The conversation you had about the county government actually now, in a sense, that answer is a very good segue to the next question that I had for you, which is to do with the relationship between NHIF and the county government. To what extent do you feel that NHIF has actually aligned with the realities of devolution in the present-day Kenya. It's been a labor of pain, I would say. It's taken longer than it should have to carry out the necessary reforms to align NHIF to the system of governance we have now and the changes that came with devolution. There have been a number of intergovernmental mechanisms that have been put in place by the Ministry of Health and the National Treasury to kind of help improve the relationship between national government health agencies, NHIF being one, and the county government, so that decisions are more inclusive of county voices. This conversation of contracts is, is one I find very confusing at times, uh, that NHIF has a contract with a health center. But, you know, the fact that that health center is managed by the county, then the question comes in on, you know, whether that contract is supposed to be jointly developed together with the county departments of health. You know, in some of the counties we went to in the five case studies that we did, the counties told us, you know, the, when the contracts come, our county attorney looks at them. But, you know, some counties like Kitui have more than 200 health facilities. So does the county attorney look at each one of them? Are they generic? So they just need to look at one and all the others look the same. Uh, so there are still technicalities like those that, you know, raise questions about the level of appreciation of the fact that counties are the managers of the facilities, not NHIF and not the Ministry of Health. The other bit which you know, brings this challenge out is the fact that when you look at the county health budgets, it was a big struggle for us to find budget lines that say these are the resources that were received by the health facility, for example, in Baringo from NHIF reimbursements. Ideally, from a budgeting perspective, all those resources should be captured in the budget. In some counties, you found a line that said something like health revenue. And when you ask the, you know, the, the directors of health in the county, they will say NHF is somewhere in there, right? Uh, together with the other collections that we make, together with any money that was received, the process of provision of healthcare. So that also tells you that either there's very little guidance on how such kind of funds should be captured in our budgets. Because as you know, with, 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 with the treasuries and PFM people, public finance people are very particular about lines and codes. So, you know, is there a code, is there a line on when you receive money from NHIF, then this is how it should be captured uh, and the like. So 
we struggled a lot to find a systemic way in which NHIF-related resources are captured at the county. All these examples I'm giving is to say, while there have been improvements, there are still a lot of challenges in terms of, number one, how many counties actually know that their facilities, being public facilities, can make requisition for any services they provide. As long as it falls within the package, there's more work to be done in aligning NHIF with what county governments are about. And that, unfortunately for me, has taken too long. Ten years down there, we should have sorted this out first year, second year, because health is the most heavily devolved function in our revolution. So why do you think then, going back to something you had pointed out earlier, that private sector providers of healthcare have been able to extract more value from NHIF than public sector providers, even though we know very well that the majority of Kenyans will go to the public health facilities? So I'll answer that question by quoting government officials, because we asked the same question of them, because we were very confused at why that's the case. So, for example, when we went to Nyeri, something was said which shocked us by the superintendent of the biggest facility in the county, the, the Nyeri Level 5. And she said that at one point when they were being presented the numbers of the payouts, only about 3% was going to public facilities in that county. I have no way of proving her number wrong because we didn't get any of this information from NHIF. But she was like, somebody presented these numbers to us. We were very curious on why that was the case. So here are a couple of, a couple of you know, uh, explanations to it. Number one is about profit making. So private sector, every shilling counts. Now, the opposite is true for government in some scenarios. Now, let's go back to my favorite nurse in Baringo. Now, let's think, right? that she has a very heavily populated catchment area, is endemic, so let's shift it from Baringo to Busia. And there's malaria cases, there is, you know, it's a, a place that is very busy. She's the only nurse. The nurse in Mugurin had a couple of colleagues. So let's take a health facility where there's only one nurse, or two at best. Now, they have a line that stretches throughout the day to treat patients. They're the same ones who have to make sure that they are providing immunization, they're answering any phone calls, they are basically everything. They are filling in the cards. So the question is, at what point do they have time to then fill in all these documents by NHIF and be thorough about them, as is the case with, with the private sector, right? So that was one explanation that was given, that you already have an overburdened workforce, especially at the lower level facilities that are really struggling to even just do the day-to-day. And then you tell them they have to fill in paperwork, right? So that's one reason. The second one, which is more of this disconnect between NHIF and the health facilities, is they introduce this biometric requisition process, which means every county government has to purchase this biometric equipment for all their health facilities so that when... Kamau's mother goes to that facility, they put in their fingerprint and their details pop up, makes life easy. But the question is, do counties, did counties actually have the resources budgeted for to buy these gadgets? And so, so some health facilities might be willing, but they actually don't have the gadgets because we no longer do the paperwork. So this is a shift that happened in the last couple of, couple of years. So that's another challenge of, again, this disconnect that is brought about by NHIF coming up with these nice ways of doing things 
uh, but our county is prepared and in the conversation to know in the next year for our 200 facilities, we need to buy these biometric systems that cost 10,000 shillings each. So we need to put together 20 million, you know, to, to purchase that. So that's another challenge that, that was mentioned in this in this in these discussions that gives us a very good understanding of what the institution actually is the nhif and i want us to now dig a little bit deeper into the report that that you actually did which was focusing on questions of transparency and accountability but before we do that i want us to examine that topic of universal health coverage that you are talking about UHC. We've had very many debates about the restructuring of healthcare financing in Kenya for a long time. I remember from when Charity Ngilu was Minister for Health in the Kibaki government talking about changing NHIF to National Social Health Insurance Fund, which really did not see light of day. And then we had the former president, Uhuru Kenyatta, who talked about universal health coverage as one of his key agenda items under the big four. During the campaign period, we had both sides of the political, the major political players. That is, the current president was talking about people not having to pay for health care once he, he comes into office. The Azimio candidate, Raila Odinga, was talking about Baba care. So, which is to say that healthcare is is very central to how Kenyans imagine their politics and how this plays out at the national political level, because it's something that evidently every president or presidential candidate has to address. So, I want you to explain to us what the universal health coverage is and how NHIF comes into play in that conversation about UHC. A starting point is, first of all, to say NHIF is not equal to universal health coverage. I think that's one mistake politicians in Kenya make a lot. Uh, there's an assumption that if you have NHIF, a well-funded NHIF, a well-resourced NHIF, you have universal health coverage. Uh, but that's not the case. But it plays a big role in it. When you think of universal health coverage, you're, you're, you're really thinking of making sure that the population has access to health services and good quality health services. Uh, without the risk of going poor in the process of accessing that uh, that healthcare. Now, when you notice from what I've said in my life, I very carefully not used the word free, <laughs> because that that's the that's a mistake many politicians make, and is the mistake that even was made for UHC in Kenya that was done in four counties in Nyeri, Siolo. Politicians went out there and said. Now we are doing a pilot run here, and so UHC is free. The, the language is not necessarily one of free, but one of affordability uh, for you to access good healthcare. But insurance helps make that possible because what you do with insurance is that you're pulling resources from the whole population. Now, the whole population will not get sick. For those who will get sick, then you will have resources to cover them, while the rest will not get sick, so you're not going to have the burden of the whole population requiring health services at one go. Uh, but often when people discuss, you know, universal health care, there's a cube that they normally talk about, but really it's three components of this that is spoken to. The first one, of course, is the financing one, which is where you, is where, sorry, NHIF falls. Uh, so this is a question of how do you pool the resources? By pooling here literally is just collecting. And where do you collect it from? Do you collect it from government for social protection aspects? Do you collect it from the employed guys? Uh, those ones can afford to pay their own premiums. Uh, the informal settlement, those who are willing, they can pay for themselves. So it's really kind of bringing it all to one place. So then the benefits can be paid from, from one center. So there's that part. 
Then there's a second part which is more about defining what services are covered because not all services are covered. And this is where the word free again becomes dangerous to use, but politicians love it. If today I decide I want to look younger than I was and I want my nose widened a little bit or whatever the heck these plastic surgeons do, NHIF will not cover me for that, right? So the defining of what the benefits package is, the services, and making sure that those services are of quality is a critical conversation for universal health coverage. So financing on one side, but also you have to think of what can be covered. And here you're doing a very careful balance to make sure that what you can cover, you actually have resources for, right? So this is, this is the balancing act of any health insurance uh, body. But the third bit, which is really now the one that speaks about the protection aspect, is that you have indigents or what we normally just call poor households who need to be covered. So how will they be covered? Right? Will they be covered by government? Is there an arrangement different from outside government that will cover that? But often it's government that ends up covering for poor households. So when you think of that matrix, you can see the role of NHIF, but it's not every because NHIF does not necessarily define the package just on its own, right? It's a conversation that happens between them and the health providers and government. The social protection of it is almost fully carried out by government, but that money is pulled into the resources that then go to NHIF. So universal health coverage then becomes this very careful balancing act where the government wants to make sure that everyone in the country can access good quality healthcare without them going poor because somebody got cancer in their family. But at the same time, they want to define what are the critical services that then will be covered in such a scenario and making sure that those who cannot pay for themselves, that there's an arrangement to cover them. It's all about protection from what they call catastrophic loss, the sense of you lose your livelihood, you lose your income simply because one member of the family got sick. There's a general feeling that the UHC effort that President Kenyatta tried was not successful or that people did not feel the impact of it. But now we have a change of administration, and I don't know whether it is something that's going to continue or not. So I just wanted to get a sense from you of what do you think about the effort that was there with the Kenyatta government, and what does the transition to the Kenya Kwanzaa administration portend for this move towards universal health care, or health coverage, rather? Let me answer that in two ways. So the first one is how it, how the universal health coverage conversation started. It was a political promise uh, for the 2017 election under the famous Big Four. What that meant, now speaking from a planning and budgeting side, is the president threw a juggernaut at the planners and budgeters uh, for them to figure it out because it was not something that was planned early on. And come 2017, 2018, 2018, 2019 budget, if you look at the reports from the Budget and Appropriations Committee, one of the lines that they had in there is there's a complete disconnect between the big four and the mainstream budget that had been presented to them. But remember, the government was speaking at the big four as their agenda. First of all, that's where things started going off the rails for the previous government. But efforts were made to try and salvage things. So, for example, there's a technical committee that was put together uh, by the then Ministry of Minister of Health, Cicely Karaoke, to define what the benefits package under universal health coverage could be. Had very good minds in it. Friends of mine from Camry and some of the international health organizations in the country did a great job. So some things were salvaged along the way. So that was one side, one side of it. The, the second side of it is that even after we started salvaging things, 
and started budgeting for them and started putting in resources. One of the shakiest budgets that we've seen in our analysis at IBP has been around health. So big shifts up and down. Supplementary budgets happen, the budget is cut by 12 billion shillings. The next supplementary happens, it's increased by 20 billion shillings. That does not look like a very well thought out approach to anything if the budgets are changing that much. In fact, during the year of COVID, this is 2019-2020, the first supplementary budget had increased the budget to the Ministry of Health at the national level. I'm not touching the counties because these are two separate budgets. At the national level, they had put in an extra 20, I think 20, yeah, 20 billion shillings or 22 billion shillings. And the immediately COVID hit, the first ministry whose budget was cut in the second supplementary in early 2020 was actually the Ministry of Health. Its budget was cut by 12 billion shillings. Now, the language in the framing of the increase in the first supplementary budget was that this was for universal health coverage. COVID comes, you would expect that will be protected, but it was cut, which left us very confused. Of course, the language that was used then is we need to rationalize the budget and save every coin we can find here and there. But if you are thinking of funding a program as large as universal health coverage is, this is going to be a program that is going to be heavily dependent on government funding. And when you see that kind of shaky funding arrangement, then you get worried on how much commitment is there for, for it. But that gives you a picture of, as the Kenya Kwanzaa government takes over, that is the mess they have to clean up. The Kenya Kwanzaa government, unfortunately, doesn't inherit anything nice and put together. Uh, but the previous government did not hit, because the plan was to hit 100% coverage by the end of 2022. We didn't. So that, that for me is... Uh, I think I call enough to the new government that they have to pull up their socks. And what has really been moving me more from analysis of politics, which is where I was, my interest used to be before, to a lot of policy analysis dimensions, because over the years I've come to learn how critical the policy dimension of all these political promises is. And ultimately, if you are not looking at the budget, if you are not seeing what where the money is going, who the money is being given to, and what the consequences of that are, we can argue from morning till the cows come home about which politician is good for you and which one is not, and who is looking after your best interest and who's not. But ultimately, I find that the rhetoric of politicians across the board is one that is filled with misinformation and hyperbole, for instance, where people say, oh, it's going to be free. But then, of course, you do not read the small print. And so you end up being being very shocked. But then when you look at the, at the practice, in one of the organizations that I'm, I'm affiliated to, we also did a research or you know, an analysis of this budget and looking at the big four for instance, you go through the national budget and you're looking for where's the money for the big four? And it wasn't just with respect to healthcare. It was across the board, these lofty ideas, but actually no money is being put into supporting and driving the agenda. So then obviously this was just a lot of rhetoric. At least I hope that the Kenya Kwanzaa government is going to prove different. I do not know whether they are going to prove us 
right in that respect. So the core of your report is about the transparency of NHIF. So even moving from the challenges of the government of the day to NHIF itself, your report gives the sense that NHIF is not a very transparent institution. And I would want you to give us an idea of what are kind of the things you found that would lead you to this kind of conclusion in your report? One of the things that we have to appreciate is that for any institution in Kenya that spends taxpayers' money, there is a requirement that they have to be accountable. And there are you know, numerous documents that speak to how they should do their reporting and how their spending should be made public. In fact, the language that the Public Finance Management Act in Kenya uses is publish and publicize. So not just publish on your website, but also publicize it. So basically tell us, hey, guys, we've put out a report and this is the kind of things it has. I, I had to literally one time early in my career Google what publicize means uh, just to be sure that we are not asking for too much uh, from, from government. But basically that's the language, right? The second bit also is that Kenya has an Access to Information Act almost seven years down, down the line. And... What the access to information says basically is if any Kenyan, if I want to access information that is held by a government institution, there is a process that is prescribed, including timelines, by when you know uh, the government institution should provide you with information. Of course, there's usually the usual caveat of security information, but let's let's take it that health information is not security information. So for us, one of the things that we really needed to understand is for an institution that handles the kind of mandate that NHIF has, an institution whose budget and resources from the public has grown by the magnitude we saw, and its membership has grown, how accessible is the information about how much money they receive and from whom, for what programs, when was it received, all that. Secondly, how is it spent? on if they did, you know, payouts, where are these payouts going to? How much is going to dispensary X or going to health facility Y and, and the likes? We started this very interesting process basically just to track that. So usually you run to their website, you check. There, wasn't, there was nothing much there. We bumped into one or two random documents that will have a line like, oh, there is money for Linda Mama, X amount of it, and the number of mothers, you know, covered were... X number, but it was a random one, like a, a quarterly update of a particular year. Uh, for us, we are looking for a period of three years. So it was shocking to us that, first of all, there's a you know there's a requirement in law that those documents should be up on their, you know, they should be public up on their website or whatever other public platform they have. But they were not there, so that was quite shocking for us. So we said, okay, we go to step two. So step two is we make a requisition for that information. So we send letters to everyone who we know is related to NHIF information. So NHIF itself, the Ministry of Health, who sit on their board. Uh, actually, the responsibility of making these things public is given to the board. So the fact that there's a Ministry of Health representative on the board, so we shoot a letter to the board. Then the National Treasury, because if there are social protection programs, the appropriation, the budgeting for that money is coming from the National Treasury. So at least... At a minimum, the National Treasury should be able to say, we sent NHIF 10 billion shillings. We did not get a single response with information. We got acknowledgements. So the National Treasury was very kind to say, we've received your letter. We think this is a good 
thing. Uh, but the people with the information are at NHIF. So, and they copy the CEO of NHIF in the letter. So, which means it also went to the CEO of NHIF. The Ministry of Health, yeah, nothing. We are happy to tell you, but we are not providing anything. So, from all these institutions, we did not get any feedback. So, we went to sequence number three, so seeking interviews. So, the National Treasury got an interview there. We got a gentleman who we were told had worked with NHIF for very many years, so he understood the ins and outs. So, they actually gave us the right people for the interviews. We go to NHIF, we get the UHC boss. Ministry of Health, we get the health financing boss. So we got all the right people for the interviews. The funniest part is all the kind of information we were looking for. They had the information, but it is not to be shared. For us, the main takeaway was, this is an institution that is going to play such a critical role in our healthcare system. But there's very little information and accountability, because the reason why you're transparent is to be accountable to the people that fund you. Even if you don't want to be accountable to National Treasury for the social protection aspect, for me who pays my 500 every month, you should be accountable to me. That's money I would have used for something else. I've given it to you. So that for us was very concerning, because if you look at their sister organization across the street at NSSF, you go to the NSSF website, you have a section on reports. They have reports going back almost 20 years. It's not like NSSF is the cleanest organization. They have their own scandals over the years. But at least there's a report that we can start looking at and saying, okay, so how much money is NSSF receiving? How much? And NSSF's, for example, spending on admin is huge. So all of us can complain about it, but we can see it in the report. So what is so special about NHIF that is not special about NSSF? So for us, this was really just a scenario of willingness because they have a very good website, has a lot of information on the services that people can access. Uh, but it's the accountability side that we found lacking. So the information we got, the little analysis you see in the paper we did, is really with things we got from the economic survey from the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics. One audit report we got from the Auditor General about NHIF. For the three years, there was only one. So we scrambled to get information here and there. Uh, even the numbers I was giving you earlier, oh, 60 billion shillings, it's not from NHIF. It's from all these other documents on the, uh, on the side. And even in those documents, you had challenges of the level of disaggregation. As NHIF themselves say, they have very many programs. But when you find these little reports from here and there, you know, you find three lines, four lines. Uh, so you're not sure how much came in for Linda Mama, how much came in from other programs that are also government-driven. And so you, you are left wondering, so what is it that we know about NHIF and what is it that we don't know? For us, from a budgeting perspective, that was quite concerning. And, and you know, we are trying to have a conversation with NHIF about this. We are not bad people. We actually plan to have a discussion with them about our findings and hear their thoughts. It's a scenario where you have nothing unique about NHIF that doesn't make them transparent because other organizations similar to NHIF are quite transparent. So that, that was the main, main, main aspect that, that we really lay out in the paper. Of course, this has an impact on NHIF and on the public. Can you briefly tell me what do you think is, is the reason why this lack of transparency is so significant and why all the stakeholders should be, should be caring and to be concerned about it? Anyone we've spoken to NHIF seems to indicate that there's no reason why they shouldn't be transparent, right? So, <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a dilemma on why they are not. So, you know, you have a scenario where you, it's a political willingness conversation. 
And on the flip side of that is there's no repercussion. Where do the repercussions come from? The repercussions will come from two institutions. One is parliament, because every government institution is accountable to parliament. So all these reports I'm talking about are supposed to be tabled in parliament. So the first place of recourse when entities like NHIF are not transparent is parliament. So why has parliament not been, right? So NHIF knows parliament will not do anything when they are not transparent. Do it, don't do it, it's all right. The other institution is the Auditor General. The Auditor General has a big role, especially in making sure that every coin that is received by NHIF is spent in a way that we draw value from it. But one of the things we found very interesting in one of the reports that we got from the Auditor General is one of the measurements of their audit is actually transparency as well. The disturbing part of their finding on that was they say that they were happy that NHIF was transparent and the reports were available in their website. The same website, we found nothing, right? So, so again, we were, <laughs> you were left very confused. So in a sense, on one side, you have accountability that then completely falls through. Nobody is holding NHIF to, to account. So even if things were to go wrong, then how would we ever know if parliament and the auditor general are not doing their part? The second bit is you can create apathy. I think the number of scandals that pop up around NHIF, you know, you can make the public feel our money is not safe. Being transparent helps you to start answering the question about trusts. And we give examples in the paper from countries like the Philippines, uh, countries like uh, Tanzania, down south. Right? If you go to the Tanzanian NHIF website, they even have a list of all the dispensaries and how much money they are requisitioning from NHIF and for what time period. Surely, even if Tanzania can do it, we can do it. Right? So... You have these examples of countries that have really made their NHIFs quite open. You want to build trusts, and that is something that NHIF might want also to do. And, and for us, even as we have the discussions with them, is the fact that you have a public that is getting more enlightened, but also one that is very short on trust. So if you're not being transparent about what you're doing, that trust will get lost very quickly. We are, we are not anywhere close to where our parents were in stomaching some of this government behavior. There's a risk of apathy, especially where you plan that this is the institution that is going to drive your universal health coverage financing in a big, in a big way. And the Kenya Kwanzaa government sounds very keen on making people pay more. So be transparent, encourage people to pay more, encourage people to take up the services. But if you don't do that, then you might actually lose it all. Interesting. So I want us to draw the conversation to a close now by talking about some of the recommendations that you would give in terms of how do we make things better, especially now that we have a new government in place that has a new administration. We've seen changes in NHIF. Engineer Michael Kamau has recently been appointed to be the chair of the board. I think there will probably be some changes in the management as well as we have seen happening in other government institutions. As I've said, it's early days, so possibly we cannot really go into, into so much about assessing these people and their performance, but I think we can possibly give a pointer to what do they need to do and what should they be paying attention to? What would be the key recommendations you would, you would give? For NHIF, they just need to be transparent. They have all this information, but that information is very useful in building public confidence, building demand for their services, which in turn then means then they can 
collect more resources, expand the programs. It, it, has a, it has a ripple effect. The fact that they have all these reports, the fact that they have all these numbers about who is covered and how many people are covered. There's, there's nothing to lose by saying 2 million mothers are covered under Linda Mama. In fact, it's a big thumbs up uh, because people are able to see just the magnitude of the services that you're providing. And as I said earlier, NHF is doing a really good job in improving the services and the, and the like. So there's a good story to tell. It's not just bad ones. Use their online platforms. They have very good ones. Use their regional offices. <clears throat> they have regional offices in every county. Let anybody who is seeking any information on NHF, they can get it there. That, that's something easy to do. And NHIF can do, can do that literally. All they need is the IT guy to upload all the documents and courier the other documents to, to the regional offices. So that's one area that I think NHIF itself can, can improve in. For parliament and the auditor general, they just need to be a bit more thorough in doing what the law requires them to do. Make sure you are getting the reports. Make sure you're publishing these reports. Making, make sure the public knows uh, what kind of queries you have about NHIF and areas that you would like NHIF to improve in. It gives all of us who work in this governance space a very crisp uh, set of issues that then we can collectively work towards uh, improving NHIF because all of us want NHIF to succeed. Uh, our, our, our legs are basically both in this NHIF uh, bandwagon. So, so that's something important that uh, these institutions can do uh, not just doing the audits, but also making sure the public knows what the oversight side of NHIF uh, is bringing out. It will be nice, for example, for the National Treasury to make public what we used to call the state corporations budget books. Hey, we looked for that one. Because, you know, you don't find the budget of state corporations in the budget documents we have. There used to be a separate book because these are separate entities uh, of government. Publishing that will give the public a very good view of how much revenue is NHIF planning to get for the coming year? But generally, I think is first of all for all Kenyans to appreciate that universal health coverage is a journey, not an end to itself. So there will be constant changes, there will be constant upgrades of the different components, the three components we spoke about. So this transparency conversation is not just about NHIF, it's one part of it. The transparency from the whole government on the three components, it's going to be very important in making sure that Kenyans buy into the universal health coverage conversation. And at any point where Kenyans are supposed to dig a bit deeper into their pockets, whether it's for the premiums or what have you, then they have better clarity on why that is necessary. So little things like those can make a big difference. And I hope that the government will improve in these different areas and the different actors involved will see their role as critical in making universal health coverage work in Kenya. And that is a good point to end the conversation. Thank you very much, John, for joining me and for those very detailed answers that will help us get a better understanding of NHIF and public health financing in Kenya. That marks the end of our show today. Thank you for listening. In case you have any questions, comments, please contact us at www.thekenyanist.com. Reach us via social media using the handle at The Kenyanist. You can also contact us on the same platforms for guest and topic recommendations. We are grateful for your continued support. You can help the podcast grow by rating us wherever you get your podcast. 
and sharing it with others who may find the topics in our discussions interesting. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you to all our team behind the scenes who make the podcast possible and to you for all the support on season one of the Kenyanist podcast. You can follow us on social media platforms at The Kenyanist and you can listen to all our episodes on www.podpage.com or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.